everybody, welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am Jerry Wan, your host of the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Whether it is your first time on Dear Asian Americans or you've been with us since March of 2020, I welcome you and we are so honored to share these Asian American stories with you to help us educate, to inspire, and to encourage each other. Today, my guest is an amazing friend that I got to meet during the pandemic, uh, thanks to Garland Fuller. And since then, I have had the honor of being educated by her, being encouraged by her, and to uh, be inspired to continue to do the work that we do here on the show and beyond. Uh, also exciting was that this was our first in-person recording post-pandemic. And so while Aiko was out here in Los Angeles for an engagement, we were able to uh, meet in person, have lunch, record in a physical space. And so that was exciting. Since then, we were also been able to, we have been able to connect uh, at South by Southwest in Austin, where she and I both spoke on our own respective panels and was able to connect and spend some more time together. She is one badass person uh, doing so much work to uplift others and bring others along. And so I encourage you to connect with her if you are inspired as well. Rarecoaching.net is where you can find her. Uh, just amazing, amazing human being. Uh, I encourage you and I ask you, invite you to come connect with me as well at the Asian Americans on Instagram is where we'll find a show. And on the internet, you can find me at jerrywan.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And without further ado, here now is my conversation with Aiko. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are staying healthy. Um, we are 2022. I thought it was going to be a much better year. Uh, looking forward at better and brighter days, but um, there's a lot of challenging news that we are continuing to hear about. So uh, when I said stay healthy and stay safe, I meant more from a COVID perspective, but uh, in, all the, in all the ways that you interpret the word, um, we wish you safety, health, peace. I am so excited to talk to my friend today for this episode, and if you have listened, you might notice that the mic sounds a little bit different because we are doing our very first in-person interview in what it seems like forever. We did our first two episodes live with PKA and Jonathan, and then we went virtual. So uh, I've been sitting in front of my computer for all of those, and today I am sitting across my guest in a hotel conference room here in LA, and I'm so, so, so excited uh, to share this conversation with my friend Aiko Bathia, um, who I got to meet last year uh, through another mutual friend of ours, Garland Fuller. And first and foremost, feeling so blessed to be in her world and to listen and just learn from her. So we're going to learn about her background. We're going to learn about her work, her life, and most importantly, just the way that she sees the world and how we can learn to be better and, and be stewards of our gifts and our privilege to uh, make the world a little bit of a better place for others. So Aiko, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here and yes, to be live as well. How are you? How has the last couple of years been? Um, I know that's a big loaded question, but how are you? I am, I think, doing well. I think if you're asking about in the last two years, like everybody else, lots of ups and downs, uh, a lot more clarity around different things as well. And in a lot of ways, community has grown, which is how you and I connected. So a lot of gifts along the way as well. That is really good to hear. So tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Who is Aiko Bethea and what does she do? So Aiko Bethea runs a leadership development firm called Rare Coaching and Consulting. And all of our work centers people of color, but our clients come from all different venues, walks of life, and identities. 
Um, but we provide leadership development in a way that elevates emotional intelligence. And that means that we keep a lot of topics on the table for folks, which are usually left off the table when we're talking about leadership. So everything from gender, race, all the issues that um, inform a leader's ability to have credibility and impact in a workplace. I love that. Some things that are always on my mind are in the topic of leadership. Uh, why do we believe the definition of leadership that we believe today? Who got to define it? And, and what does it mean for us? And I think, at least speaking from my perspective, um, I know that the definition of leadership that I pursued in my life was what my parents taught me. And I think the way that they defined what American leadership meant is to be a successful executive in a American or white organization to make a lot of money and to, you know, be respected in society. But we know that, you know, for us, for many of us who experience life in very different ways, that's really different. And so I am so glad that you do the work that you do, because I think we need more voices like that, particularly in the Asian American community and just pushing forward uh, what we believe to be the things that we need to do to make the world a better place for our kids. Did you always want to do this work as a child or as somebody growing up in the world? Um, and to help us get a better understanding of that, I uh, would love for you to uh, take us down uh, memory lane, the Bethea family lane, and um, share with us sort of your Asian American uh, journey, your family's uh, migration journey here and, and how you came to be. Absolutely. So when I think about just my family of origin story period is I was raised in a Japanese speaking household. My mother, she came here when she was about 26 from Japan. So she's from Kagoshima in Japan, but she met my father there who was a Marine. So my father is African-American. They had my sister there, my sister Yoko, they had in Yokohama. <laughs> and so they came here later. My mom's about 26 or 27. So you think about that, um, and when I say came here, specifically in South Carolina. So that's a really different type of here that we're talking about. And super low income, and my father had a high school diploma, and so he was enlisted and was also from a very poor background. So my grandmother, et cetera, they were sharecroppers. So really close to when you when you think about the background of enslaved people, and we have a lot of that history and story and trauma about how my father was even raised. From there, they divorced when I was about two. So I never really had a relationship with my father until I was 30. We ain't going to go through all of that because that's a whole other story. <laughs> but I was raised, we were poor, so I was raised in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And I always talk about that as a gift because that usually if one of your parents is black and you're not raised with that parent, if you are from a high income or upper middle class income, usually not going to be raised around black people. Mm. So because we were poor, I was in community with black people in South Carolina at a Title I school. And I present in terms of my features or what have you as being black. Gift I got was my grandmother also moving here from Japan later because she got divorced. So that was taboo. But she mm -hmm. moved here and she helped to raise us. So I have a sister and a brother and I'm the youngest. So that's why in our household you talk about speaking Japanese. Um, and in that, anybody from an immigrant family, especially one where language is different and the color of your skin is different, you learn to translate systems really quickly. You learn what's being said when it's not even spoken. You may sometimes be put in a situation to be more mature than 
you are in your years, like you're the one who's counting the money, you're the one who's understanding that, wow, that word that somebody just used was actually a derogatory word to my mother, but she doesn't know that. Right. And it means the other things about what does it mean to be an insider and an outsider, like we never went through the drive-through at McDonald's because they could never understand what my mom was saying. Her accent was really thick. And even when you think about the shame around that, what are you saying? What are you saying? All of those experiences you witness and you see it so you understand what it means to be othered. So I think uh, in that way, and even going from there and going to all the decisions that I made from where I went to school for undergrad, where I went to school for law school, all of that, they were all financially driven. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went to Smith because they gave me more money. They say that's where feminism was born, Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, but it was white feminism, elitism. When I, I went to the Marine Corps uh, twice for officer candidacy school, and that was because I wanted somebody to pay for my law school. Mm. And didn't work out, so I ended up going to Chapel Hill, but I didn't go the first year I was accepted because you wait a year, you get in state tuition. <laughs> and so doing that, so everything, and going working at a big law firm, all that financially driven. So the first decision I made that was not financially driven was leaving a big firm six-digit salary to go work for the city of Atlanta mm. and taking like a 70% pay cut. But it was in order to work with Stacey Abrams. Because mm. the first decision I made that was not financially driven and left there and ended up being going moving to Seattle to work at the Gates Foundation. Seattle was a great place to land because it has a large Asian population, specifically Japanese population. Was the decision to pursue law financially motivated too? And, and how much of that did you share with your siblings or was the goal to you know, help your mother and grandmother sort of pay them back, if you will, for the sacrifices. So like a lot of immigrants' (laughs) stories, it was definitely the idea about who pays and how do you define success. So a couple of ways you could define success, doctor or lawyer. (laughs) And I think also for me it meant not being in a situation where I would always have power exercised over me or the people who I love or the people who are important to me. But it was also about, you know, mom being proud that was something that translated really well, and it did have to do with finances, too. So that was certainly part of the immigrant story, Asian-American story of you have be successful, white-collar work, doctor or lawyer. And I'm not good at math or anything like that, so I had to be a lawyer. <laughs> and a great thing about going to Smith is I didn't have to take any math classes. So, so yeah, um, really good question because that is very much a part of the um, our paradigm, right? Right. I, I think, you know, knowing what you do now professionally and what I do, and we're uh, good at making money at it, um, it helps us to redefine through unlearning and relearning what it means to be successful and hopefully um, serves as uh, inspiration or at least um, just through visual uh, or having somebody else done it that you can uh, do good work and, you know, make a good living and take care of your family and all that. Um I'm curious about your experience at Smith because, you know, you, you mentioned that it was, and, and most people who know, uh, you know, stereotypically about the school, it is not the most diverse of campuses. It is an all-women's college. Um, it is in the East Coast and sort of uh, plays into that that narrative. How much about yourself did you learn in that environment? Um, you are mixed race, as, you, as we have learned. Um, you present more black than Japanese from a features perspective. Did you find community there? And, and how did you how did you go through that? So, yeah, Smith is a PWI, predominantly white institution. And something interesting happens when you are in these campuses, New England area, PWI, is that when there are fewer of you, 
you guys can become really close. <laughs> so in terms of a really tight black community, I was actually East Asian studies major. So staying connected with mm. Asian community. Um, but those were my people. And I think that, you know, when you're at an HBCU or something, you got like, you know, the world's their oyster in terms of people who look like you. But when it's only a handful of you, you end up being really tight and close. So for me, even in the summer times, what I chose to do with the summers was to be uh, to work with the Children's Defense Fund. So I went to South Central L.A. and I went to the, um, the Acorn in Oakland. So all um, working at different housing projects. But what I why I needed to do that was to reconnect with community mm. and do the work that was really important to me in the spaces that I could reconnect with. So it was back in another point of validation. And I learned being at Smith is that community was so important to me. And that I needed to be in connection with community to stay grounded, to be able to affirm others, to be validated, just my reason to be. And I knew that the regular standard idea of what success looks like and what it might feel like would not fit with me unless it was in terms of, yes, I'm going to be a big firm lawyer so that people like me see people like me, so that I have more income so that I can take care of my mom or whoever, or I can put money in the places where it needs to be, but it was always rooted back into the essence of community. That's a lesson that most people don't learn until way later in life, I think. But I, you know, having heard your story and, and knowing, um, you know, more about you now, it, it it makes a lot of sense because South Carolina, I don't know anybody from South Carolina who is from the Asian American community, and I can only imagine how challenging it was, particularly um, given the family dynamics that you shared with us about. And mm-hmm. um, and so I, know, knowing what you do now, it is, uh, I, I'm very blessed. I, f- I feel very blessed to have known you and to, for, for you to have chosen the steps that you did. Um, you said you, men- you, you mentioned uh, after Big Law, you went to Atlanta to work for Stacey Abrams and work with her. Was that, what, what made that switch? Um, having made a similar switch, leaving a lot of money in the table and being questioned by a lot of people close to me saying, what are you doing? But being led by my heart to know that eventually the money would uh, take care of itself or to be driven by a higher cause or a different cause rather. Um, what what preempted the move and, and what did you learn through that? You just took a 70% pay cut? Yeah, um, I was already in Atlanta. So I started working for the city of Atlanta. Hmm. Um, and as much Linda DeSantis, who was a city attorney, as uh, was a part of it because she hired Stacy, And there was this move of different attorneys from big big firms going to work for the city because it's like that thing we're talking about with elitism. If you're not a big firm, have you even practiced law? And to go directly to the city work or something, folks would automatically think that you're at a lower, lower mm-hmm. caliber. So there are a lot of things that made it even a safer choice in that way despite the financial um, different difference that happened but really it was even though I was at a law firm in Atlanta a big firm there and there you know tons of black people in Atlanta within the law firm that wasn't the case Mm. it was the idea of it's a different price that you pay being around people who don't look like you all day long Um, it's being there and thinking every time you're doing something or what have you, the idea of, one, what we talked about, which is like, oh, should you? Are, am I supposed to be grateful that I'm here? Mm. <laughs> um, it's the idea of knowing you're not going to get the best assignments. It's the idea of knowing that the 
you know, white counterpart down the street who's a size two down the hall is going to get the better assignments. So it was always this idea of needing to prove myself, but not in a way of proving my skills, but that I actually belong and I should be worthy. And there are a lot of ways of getting that message um, and receiving that message. And it's, it's exhausting. And so being in the city, being able to work at Mayor Franklin, Shirley Franklin's um, uh, under her administration, being able to work with a lot of brilliant attorneys, and being able to just go to work and be black and not be apologetic was huge. And so I felt like I got as much as, um, I got a lot from that in terms of validation and seeing excellence all over the place, right? Black excellence all over the place. So, and I got a chance to really practice law versus writing memos for some partner <laughs> somewhere and being in the back room. Yeah. Quick sidebar. Uh, we know Stacey Abrams now, most of us, uh, with, with her more national uh, notoriety, if you will. But how big of a deal was she back then for you to make the jump to, to go work uh, under her leadership? So I think most people knew that Stacey was just really brilliant. So I think that had a lot to do with this, you know, dynamic young lawyer who's super smart, super brilliant. I actually didn't know what kind of leader or boss she would be. And she was definitely hands down the best boss I've ever worked for or leader. Took risks on me, let me do some things I never would have been able to do before um, without saying, oh, you're the greatest or anything. Just the fact that she enabled and pushed me to do some things I would not have done. Was never like, oh, this is your chance, but just gave me some assignments that were kind of hard as hell. A lot, you know, being in front of the city council, all sorts of things like that were just opportunities you don't always get. And I certainly wasn't getting them before. So um, she I would say that, you know, everyone knew she was really brilliant, but it wasn't definitely on the scale of now. I mean, she was writing romance novels. I'm actually a character in one of her novels. There's Aiko Patea, who's a tattoo artist. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, it, it was just a matter of her leadership style is really different. And she's was probably probably maybe kind of eccentric, but she just believed and she didn't throw roadblocks in my way. Hmm. Well, I think we all need people like that. Um, yeah, we went to uh, a children's store a few weeks ago, and now she's written the children's book. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, which my first response was, where did she find the time? Uh, <laughs> so let me just tell you, Jerry, we all said that way back then too. Like, what? She's writing romance novels? What? She's doing what? So we all thought the same thing back then. On a whole different level now. Um, you, we uh, last heard we through, or last time we heard about your journey, you uh, went across the country, uh, closer to here in LA, into, into Seattle to work for the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, why, why that? Why that? I guess did you know uh, that you eventually wanted to do the work that we do now in, in leadership, and did that play a role, or were you just, you know, did that seem like a sensible next step for you? Yeah, I feel so ashamed <laughs> because of our other conversation. So part of it is I wanted to go into nonprofit type of work. Mm. But it was the idea of who can actually pay me. <laughs> right. No, I, I, I didn't want important. to go backwards again. And so Gates Foundation is one of the places that was able to you're able to command a salary at a certain level. And that's why I mm. went there. Um, and it was the idea of philanthropic work. And I definitely kind of drank the Kool-Aid about how, you know, the work they're trying to do to change the world or what have you. And that's why I went. And I was there for about eight years. But while you were there, you led some initiatives that were both uh, in the uplifting and the amplification of both the Black and the Asian communities. Teach us a little bit on the world of philanthropy, the high-level world of philanthropy that exists that we hear about. And 
um, how and why it is important that you were there, uh, not just visibly present, but to uh, be present and vocal to advocate that people in our community, organizations who do work within and for the community, uh, get noticed and get funded uh, from these large foundations that now, unfortunately, in my opinion, have to do a lot of the funding for a lot of the good in the world. So representation always matters, right? The other part is even in hiring. So my um, grants and contracts manager being a um, deputy director over, which um, is a bigger deal there to have person of color or what have you, especially then my team was the most racially diverse. Mm. Um, so this idea of even being able to show hiring, and of course we, we pay that price, right, when we hire people who look like us or other people of color and we're the only ones doing it. And other white folks were doing it. So you are probably more visible in certain ways. But also being able to bring those ideas in and knowing where the majority of the Gates Foundation funding was going at the time, you know, be it domestically or globally, it's impacting brown, black and brown communities. But no one's really talking about race at all. So it was like the sanitized conversation. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, I did start the first employee resource groups, one for um, black folks and one that was for Asian folks. And even now, having had left, going back to our point about legacy and why are we in these spaces, too, and what's our responsibility, even now having black folks who are there saying, oh, man, I heard that you started this. It's, this has been my saving grace. Mm. This has been the place I've gone to. Community, right? Going back and where there's community and space for people. So even all of that work and leading some of the first conversations across the organization around race and naming it and talking about it, which is weird to think that it wasn't being done, Right. But even talking about why the reason why some of these nonprofits weren't in the running for money is because just like now, you end up giving money to people who you're familiar with, who you might have a network with, who you feel safer with. Also, it costs money for these nonprofits to even apply or to get a grant. So oftentimes those nonprofits were actually would have ended up in the red because they've got to do these reports. They've got to do a, fill out certain kind of financial templates. They've got to do all these other things where they're on a shoestring budget. Right. And so now I have to exert more energy to get this money to do work that I'm trying to do in my community. And you find out that the same players get to make the calls about how money is funded in our community. And they're not from right. the community. I think this is an important point to make that, you know, I, I think it's okay to be both uh, grateful in a way that, people who have amassed great wealth or have resources um, want to invest in our community, but at the same time be bluntly frustrated and upset that they might not have the context which in how to best help the community because of lack of uh, context or lack of, you know, just the nuance of understanding how some things exist in that community. Right. Um, And so, you know, um, I am not from the world of philanthropy, but I, you know, do observe that sometimes there is a, a disconnect from uh, that is an opportunity really to build tiny bridges, big bridges across. Because if there's a group of people who have resources to help and to do the same things that other people want to do, it's just a matter of making sure that they're aligned. Um, but you know, I, I think it's important um, even for people within those organizations at the foundations to feel safe, right? Because I think sometimes um, in the mission-driven organizations, 
whether it be philanthropic in nature or religious in nature or other cause-based, there's almost this, as long as we're on the same team fighting for the same cause, that should be unifying enough. So why are you talking about something else, right? And so, you know, in a company, it might be, hey, we're all here to grow the top line so we can get to the next stage. Maybe it's in, you know, uh, a cohort-based learning thing where it's like, hey, we're just trying to get through. But it is important to recognize that look around the room and the military might be a good example too and you have experience there where it's important to address what the room looks like and how it might be different for the person literally sitting next to you to go through (coughs) the same exact experience and that's not to say that anybody has it easier or not it privilege does play into it but at the same time it's just different and that advice or a manual or a way of doing something isn't universally accepted in all cases. And so I, I, I think it's critically important and, and I'm so grateful that you did that. And it's wonderful that you're sharing the story and your legacy of being bold enough to create those spaces impacts the people who are there today um, because it's important. And I don't think any of us uh, who start these things in places that we've been in our past lives really understand, probably will never understand that the true wide impact of that one decision to say, hey, we should create this office or, hey, can I have some money to go do something? And so um, that's really, really cool. Um, how did, and then where'd you go from there? I, I want to go back to something you said about philanthropy because that's, yeah. I think it's so important when you said, hey, this idea of being grateful, but then at the same time being frustrated. The thing I want to name is that one, the inception of philanthropy anyway and where that money came from and at the cost of whom, and then perpetuating who gets to decide how the money is used. So there is a part about um, also why not, if you're the owner of that money or you have possession of the money, why not ask communities what they want and believe that they're resourceful enough to understand better than you what they need and what they want. You know, we don't want we need a whole charter school program or whatever. We actually need to make sure that we can eat, we need to make sure that, hey, there's some type of program about housing, it's equitable, all these other things. But the thing about philanthropy part of it is that lack of even acknowledging and the humanity and dignity of knowing that other people might know what's better for them and what's best for them. So I do want to just actually put that on the table, too, because there's a lot about just the history of philanthropy and being charitable and helping those poor people who can't help themselves versus recognizing why are people in the situations there are, oh, actually the way that you even acquire that money is part of the reason. And the way that you continue to acquire money is a part of that reason. So really a weird kind of um, dynamic there. And if we don't name it, it just seems um, disingenuous. But even from there, so leaving there, I led um, diversity inclusion at a bio, kind of a biotech um, nonprofit, Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center Um, and left there, and we came back to Atlanta right before the pandemic. And part of that is that there just weren't people, a lot of, a large mass of people who look like my sons. Like, I have a 12 and 13-year-old, and they're two black boys. And wanting to raise them closer to family, but also in terms of being able to see themselves. Mm. When I left here, I left from Atlanta, so coming back to Atlanta made perfect sense. Um, And knowing that I didn't want to go back into, basically, white spaces, and I didn't want to be having to prove myself to anybody. So I was like, let me take a bet on myself mm. and hang out my own shingle because I was kind of doing like we all do. And if you're not, you should be a side hustle. <laughs> and it was actually making, I was bringing in as much money as my salary. So mm. I was like, let me make a full bet on me. 
And the thing that I didn't name earlier in leadership development, a core part of the work I do is executive coaching. Um, having gone to Hudson and now I teach other coaches as well. But that was super important for me to create my own space, but also as a model that we can thrive on our own terms. Mm-hmm. We can define success on our own terms, that we need to be able to identify and see systems to understand the difference between so that we're not, the stories we're telling ourselves are not the same stories that the system tells us about our inabilities, mm-hmm. the reasons why we don't, we aren't worthy. But having a different narrative and somebody on the outside being able to walk with somebody on that journey. And I knew that after having executive coaches, there just were not many who looked like us. And so sometimes that harm is just being perpetuated. And so we needed people, more people who look like us, to be in those seats to create a clearing and a space for people who look like us to be able to uh, not only be validated, but to even think and hear themselves think out loud and hear their own voices versus the same voices of the system or um, majority white spaces where we're actually told to be successful means assimilation, covering, code switching, all these things that can take us oftentimes further away from our first voice. I'm so grateful you you touched upon all these things because as we said at the top of the show, leadership, uh, and if you've, you know, uh, been to school or any sort of, you know, organized leadership activities, uh, church, nonprofit work, companies you go through, you know, if you're being promoted, you go through leadership training or whatever. We're told that there is a specific formula and... Uh, you know, I am a straight Korean American man. Uh, Aiko is a Japanese Black American woman. We're, we both checked the Asian American box, but we couldn't. Our, our experiences are different, and so how can you bring together dozens of people and saying this is what leadership looks like? This is how you conflict resolve. This is how you handle situations without taking into regard how we were raised what we were told was the right thing to do. Um, Just the way that we view life is so different. And so it is critically important for organizations to understand. And this is not to say you have to exhaust every single person, but you have to at least talk about these things so that people understand that the content of leadership development is important. But what's more important than that is the context of leadership development so that people who've never been told that they could be a leader see it and it's not by the same definition or the same pathway that it might be for somebody else. Um, you know, in some cultures and many of our cultures, you know, speaking up is not a positive trait. Uh, but in typical American leadership, it's the loud person that's exuded as tall, you know, uh, putting your chest out, projecting your voice and being confident, making eye contact. In some cultures, that's your respect. Um, I believe it or not, for in my first job out of school, could not call the white person, who white man who was in charge of my company's division by his first name for like weeks. Because in my mind, I'm like, that's Mr. That's Mr. Flint. He's the president of the division. Uh, it's hard. And so I was like, this is, it felt rude to call him Rod. It was just weird. And, you know, I went to a great university. I went to a great high school. I was Americanized. I spoke, you know, I got the job. I earned my way there. And to process that, and I still think about it. I'm like, 
man, if that was hard for me, I can't imagine how hard it is for other people within our community and other communities who don't even have the same level of privilege that I was blessed to have. And so we can't shove leadership as a principle down people's throats without thinking about what it means different or how it means differently for different people. So it is important that you, particularly you with the identities that you carry, go into these spaces for people to see you. Um, and, and sometimes it's as simple as seeing somebody who looks like you on a stage or on a Zoom call or you know on a web page or whatever and to be like, oh my God, there's somebody who looks like me with the word leadership next to it and I've never seen that before, all the way to telling people uh, that they belong somewhere. And, and so, I mean, that's part of the reason why we do this show is to share different Asian American stories to uh, really illustrate the point that there's an infinite number. I mean, there's 4 billion of us globally, so there's at least 4 billion ways to define what it means to be an Asian person. Um, but it also means that, you know, we have to be mindful of how only we can teach each other and our communities uh, with the context of the lessons that we learned in, in different, you know, life paths. And so... Um, how was, you know, as, as a parent myself, and you mentioned that you waited until, you know, you, you felt like you had a jump off point of having, uh, matched your side in, side hustle income with your main. And, um, it's certainly not an easy decision to make, um, especially when you have a partner, especially when you're married and it's in a pandemic. Um, what drove you? Was it sure the opportunity of the financial success, which is important and necessary, um, share with us sort of that decision-making process for, for other folks who actually, as you said, might be doing something that they feel so passionate about as a side hustle. Um, but I think one of your greatest chapters of your story is founding Rare and saying, mm -hmm. hey, this is my name on the door uh, and all the other ones help me get there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think so when I first came to Atlanta, I did one interview at a big tech company that should remain unnamed. And when I was in the interview, I thought, I don't want to do this shit again. And I can't. I was like, why the hell would I subject myself to this? I'm not doing it. And a lot of us have been in spaces where we are having to be beholden to a leader who needs to feel like they're the leader. Or they're not going to acknowledge your skills, knowledge, skills, and abilities. And that's just the making of some real just crazy shit, right? And I just thought, why would I do this? There's no way. I am not doing this. I'm going to bet on myself first. Mm. So that's part of it. Part of it was like wanting to spend more time with my kids. The other part of it was literally when I was in Seattle, I mean, I had low-grade depression. I would not have made it through COVID and the murder of George Floyd and things being in Seattle. So there's a lot of things that actually gave me the sign that, you know what, girl, you need to bet on yourself. Mm. You don't bet on yourself, why should anybody else? And we lived in a historically black area of um, Seattle called the Central District. By the time we left with the gentrification, we barely saw people who looked like us. Mm. And it wasn't only that, but it was like folks calling the police on folks who have been in that community forever. Because, you know, the tech, whatever, all that other stuff. So I needed to come back here also for my own sanity. And I'm telling you, like, just a strength from community. And being feeling validated and seeing people who look like you around. Like I needed to come back for my own survival. And I thought, why would I come back here in order to work in a white organization again? It's going to be telling me a lot of bullshit that I don't believe and I don't want to believe. So that was a big part about doing it for myself. The other part was to actually be able to hire people so that they're in a space where they don't have to be subject to that. Mm. 
The other part was to be able to actually do this work within organizations. You and I have talked about this before. When you're on the outside, you're not beholden to anybody. You can say whatever the hell you need to say when you go into that organization and speak truth. Because for other people, speaking truth to power has a consequence and a price that they can't pay. It's a privilege to be able to go in and speak truth to power in these spaces. And you have more choice to be able to do it when you work for yourself. That we do. Um, And if I don't get invited back, I would wear that badge proudly (laughs) as somebody who uh, shook the boat or rocked the boat enough where they don't want to hear me say it. Um, That's right. And and I think, you know, it's important for, uh, I always say this, you know, we don't, for, for us, we left and we are doing the work that we believe needs to be done outside of the system. And there are certainly benefits there, but certain challenges. Um, But at the same time, we need friends of ours to stay in the organizations um, to bring us in, to advocate (laughs) for us. Um, Because the scariest thing for me is to envision an organization where all the people who are are marginalized leave. And so the people who are left are all the people who made it miserable. And yes, or they stay and they're like dying slowly every minute when they stay. Yeah. So inside and outside, I think it's wonderful. Um, timing wise, you know, you had mentioned that you had just moved back to Atlanta and, and started this new chapter of your life uh, pre-pandemic. So in the last, you know, three years and the last three years has been tough um, for our community, for the black community, um, just as a human being going through COVID um, as a parent with kids home um, as all the things. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, um, the, the fact that you live at the intersection of two cultures is rich and is amazing, but you carry two identities that have been really impacted um, through no fault of your own. Uh, just really, really tough storylines. And um, it intersects so much and overlaps so much with the work that you do so that we don't have to talk about this stuff and so that our children can walk down the street safely and so that we can talk about all this crap in the past tense, hopefully sooner than later. Um, how have you been able to process that and how um, how has that impacted the work of the urgency and the necessity of what you do? So I think that Part of it, there's one thing about the unification of this work with our different um, backgrounds, right? Especially race and ethnicity, because you have this common goal and it's like, oh my gosh, privilege, whiteness, colonialism, colonization, and you, the, what you're trying to dismantle is so clear. It gets really complicated when we start talking about in-community violence. Mm. Just like when people talk about black-on-black crime, you're like, what the heck, what? Or <laughs> black communities are more homophobic, all this all these things that um, happen because there's a mixture of what's actually happening in our community and you never want to air out dirty laundry. There's also this idea of this stereotype and this you know, myth that the system's been telling about your community too. Right. That some people have swallowed and some people haven't. So I think that um, for me, it's never when folks say, oh man, you know, I never knew I was black or I never knew I was biracial until blah, blah. I was always acutely aware because of I was in this home Whereas these two Japanese women speaking Japanese all the time, we ate different food, different things, and then I'd go up the street to Title One school where everybody was black, and it was a, the common denominator, of course, was poverty and different things. So I was never confused about who I am. If er, people ever ask me, "Oh, you know, what are you? What are you mixed with?" I'm like, "What do you think?" 
Irish and black. What do you think? You know, but if I say, oh, I'm, I'm Japanese and they're like, Japanese and what? What do you think? Because I present as black. But the idea of one, being able to embrace both of them. And I'll tell you this, um, we weren't planning on talking about this, but, you know, when in identifying so much with my blackness and how I was raised, it was hard for my mother to understand that. You know, a mother's Japanese woman who's in this country, not raised in the context of what race is here, but in a homogenous country. So for her, even as I was coming up, these points of why are you making such a big deal about this? Like she couldn't relate to that experience, right? So, and I don't even know if she always recognized what was happening in a racist way towards her as someone who's being Asian, because I do think that there's this idea of work hard, work hard. And not until all the overt things started happening in this country, like how Barack was treated, did I feel like there were these points of validation that she started to kind of understand what I meant. And even as I was raising my boys to understand about blackness and other things, her thought was, why would you be talking to them about that? Why are you doing? And now it's like she gets and she's, of course, like the biggest freaking advocate, right? She's doing putting up all the (laughs) displays uh, about things. And anyway, but even within the household, her not understanding that or understanding that narrative. So knowing that and this is the person, one of the people I love the most in this life, I understand when if you're Asian and you came to this country and you only narrative you have about black people is a narrative that's been told to you over and over again. Shit, what the hell? And most of our communities are very segregated unless we're assimilating. So it makes sense to me in this way. But what is hard is like with just now the two recent murders of two Asian women. And one of the murders was an African-American man. And his image being everywhere. <coughs> and my, my hope and prayer was just that this does not become a space for anti-blackness within the Asian community. That even when the, and, and that even when um, the, the, the shooting spree happened in Atlanta, the idea that we have all these black people, I just pray and hope that you know us as black people, we also see this as an issue that impacts us. It's also a class issue. It's also a, there are all these identities and things and wanting people to be able to still be in a unified voice, but understanding you're all navigating a system that is telling lies about who we are and that benefits from us being fact in a faction, you know, factionalized. And that's the part that scares me and saddens me. And I think, oh, it's always really important for me to actively say, hey, I'm in both of these communities. And at the same time, show up in a certain way, but knowing that and it wasn't somebody who was Asian who plastered that black person's face all over the place. And was, you know, shifting this narrative and nobody was saying, oh, mental illness or what have you. And at the same time, holding the harm that happened to this woman. And it's just really, we got to have more spaces and clearings where we have these conversations. And, you know, people always talk about Yuri and Malcolm. But also thinking about the fact that we need to inhibit one another's communities, too. Something you just said, I haven't heard that before, which is we, all of our all of the marginalized communities, the ethnic and the minority, the immigrant communities in America stay segregated until we're in a places of assimilation. And then we just have to pretend like we're something else just to survive. Um, poor Asian and poor black people don't typically coexist in America. Um, and the only times we meet is 
at that fancy school or in a new neighborhood where neither of us uh, <laughs> belong yes. or I guess or, or places that were not meant for us. Um, yes. Yeah, you know, it, it's really something that, um, you know, so I, I was born in Korea. I came here when I was eight. Um, I think, you know, the very first time uh, to my memory, um, I don't know if I actually saw black folks in Korea, but the very first memory that I have of an interaction, if you could call that, of a black person was off the 10 freeway here in LA uh, when somebody at the freeway exit um, was trying to wash our windows and my mom saying, lock the door. And I'm like, why? And, you know, again, just like your mother, my mother came to America around the same time being raised in a homogeneous country and America military, just like in your father's case, was a whole different animal. But just being what was American and, and what did that teach us and being raised in a suburb of LA where there were more, you know, the school district sent letters, English in the front, Korean in the back. Like that's how Korean it was. And not really understanding what even what race was until I moved to New York city and like actually had black friends and had conversations with them. And, um, and finally now, you know, in my thirties understanding that it's not separate, that we have to, be that there's something else that is keeping us all down. But you're right. There is, unfortunately, this faction of the Asian American community that are anti-black, uh, in my opinion, through through fear and um, lack of understanding and lack of rela real relationships, just like there is a faction of the black community who resent the Asian community for, you know, uh, opening stores in neighborhoods and not contributing or you know, uh, perpetuating harm. Um, and I, I think about friends like you who are both. And if either of those groups are true, then what are you supposed to, you're both. And as we evolve as a society, especially in America, mixed relationship, mixed race relationships and biracial and multiracial children are going to be, there's going to be more of them. And so how the, you know, how do we responsibly talk about this with our children because they don't know they don't you know they're just friends and so it I, I think you know it is especially as a parent um so important and so i don't know it's something that is uh i wish we talked about more openly to be honest with you and i'm grateful that you have, have shared with us um you know again some things that i uh, I didn't intend to, to to talk about, but we we did go deep a little bit. And um, what is your hope in the work that you do? Um, the my hope is that more of us are liberated. And when I say liberated, it looks like us having choice and having agency and being able to decide. I don't want to actually be at this company. I want to do this and not feel like we have the weight of our whole community on our shoulders or for some reason we shouldn't do it, um, knowing that because the promotion or whatever didn't happen, it's not because we're less than. Uh, so that's part of out of the work I want is for people to have be more intentional about their lives and having more agency and having choice. The other part is... Um, also, people be self-interrogating themselves more. Why do I believe this? Where did that come from? What? Who told me this? And why am I drinking this water? 
Because no matter, you know, white, black, whatever, we are all drinking from the same contaminated water of colonialism. And we've got to be able to zoom out and look at it so that we can at least filter the water we're, bring, we're, 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 we're digesting. That we're having these conversations intentionally with our kids so they're aware and conscious. But to have this degree of intentionality. And that's what I hope. And I hope that, you know, we, my, the continuum of the work for me is that we are living to thrive and we have joy because right now we're at the point where we kind of have this permission to talk about things, right? Oh, you can actually say white supremacy at work. You can actually talk about race at work. What? And so we're at this continuum, but it's, it's still steeped in trauma. Because you and I were talking about this before, like the advent of allowing these conversations and us having permission to talk about it was out of trauma. And so a lot of our roles in society are steeped in trauma. And so now I can speak about that and the hardship and the harm and people want to listen to it and it's kind of voyeurism or what have you. But the next, that's the that's not the ends to this. You know, the ends of it's not so that we can talk about our trauma and me and make it more visible. It is so that we can have agency and have joy and live lives where we're thriving. So that's my my um, goal is that there's more of that. And one of the things I believe is that, you know, we always live in the imaginations of white folks. I can't remember who said it, but like living imagination of white folks is like the most dangerous thing. But for us, we need to start doing world building it's not just about futuristic whatever, you know, people with powers who are in our skin or whatever, but actually world building about the world we want here and now. Mm. And that means things like the works that work that creatives do. It means one of my projects is like this, you know, this cozy comfort series where it's about it's a community that is people of color, though. It's about us actually having choice and defining success in our own terms. I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to go and open my own store mm. or my own entrepreneurship. Hey, I'm actually really great at numbers. I'm brilliant. I'm smart, but I don't want to work for PwC. So I'm going to still be gaming in my black or my Asian skin and go to cosplay and do whatever I want to. And I'm still going to be making money off of my talents, but it's on my own terms. Right. And that's what I want. And I'm hoping that in everything from fiction and things that we're writing that we start seeing ourselves like this. So we know it's a possibility. Mm. We pursue it. We know there are happy endings. It's not always about how's that next check going to come in. Yeah. And guess what? When, you know, Bob and them go and get a beach read or whoever, you know, Sarah, she gets the beach read that we wrote. That's about us. And it's different characters who look different and they start seeing us up close and personal and not in trauma not because we were murdered on TV, not because of look at all these terrible statistics and disparity, but like we've got lives too and we have community and we live in joy and there's some awesome things and you start seeing us as full whole people and we start seeing ourselves like that and we see how we look when we have choice. Yeah, 100%. Thank you for that. And we're, we're all, that's the goal for uh, to have the audacity to the audacity at first and then the true belief and then the true ability to exercise that freedom for our children to to do whatever the hell you want um that's really the goal of life right and you know does money buy happiness no money buys choice um you know edu education buys choice um you know and if you choose to continue to operate in the system that's your choice but it should not feel like because you have to 
Um, people stay in crappy jobs that are unhealthy because they have to pay back their loans, because they have to pay for things or because... Um, because people say that the other route isn't worthy. Correct. You need to be a doctor. You need to be a lawyer. You need to be an engineer. Yeah. Look, we're right here. The two of us, the dude has an MBA. The woman has a law degree. And we met because of our care for the community. And not just that, but we believed in that we could turn it into a profitable business so we can take care of our kids. And so uh, maybe the next time you, if you're listening to this and you're stuck in a position or you feel that uh, you're, you know, you went to XYZ school and now it just feels like it's, you're in too deep to make a pivot. Um, think about us. Um, we didn't need our educational backgrounds to do specifically what we do today, but it does inform our view. It does help us do the work that we do better or uh, peer sets who support us and to bring us along in these journeys or from our past lives and continue to support us. And so why not? Um, and we always, it's easy to bring him up because he's the most notable, but you know, Ken Jung was an actual practicing doctor who said, F it, I'm going to go tell some jokes. Mm -hmm. And my goal is that there's so many Ken Jungs out there that I don't, I don't always talk about him when we talk about this topic. <laughs> we actually have more names than name. I, I would say the other part is for some folks to also know that even without, you know, without credentials, degrees or whatever, pave the life that you want to live, not the one that society says is worthy or that you must take. Or what that your mom says. And I know, <laughs> and I know that's hard. That, that's the hardest one for us. Right. Um, because we 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 love our moms. We value um, a lot of the things that uh, family and honor and all these things. But um, you got to be worried about you. Um, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, this was your idea to meet in person, which makes it that much extra special. Um, figuring out all the equipment stuff as I was coming up here, I said, man, I, have, I haven't plugged this in in a long time uh, to, to in-person record. But um, as, as a final uh, farewell, or I'll see you soon, uh, help us close out the show in the way that we always do by speaking a Dear Asian Americans letter to our audience and share with us, share with yourself, share with me, uh, your children, whoever you wanted to address this to. Any thoughts that come to mind in terms of the life lessons that you've learned and uh, the points of inspiration that you want to leave with us? So uh, help us close out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Say, say the inspirational thing you want to say. Um, define success in your own terms. Define success in your own terms. And that begins sometimes with unlearning what success has been defined for you. And as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, the first unlearning you might have to do is unlearning what your parents taught you. And for me, that was the toughest. And so I can only imagine how tough it is and how tougher it is for certain people. Um, some of the burdens that we are laden with, especially if your parents have suffered a lot, if they made a lot of sacrifices for you, or if you're the firstborn son, or if you're expected to take over the family business or all these things. I'll leave you with this folks today. I, I heard this this week. Um, you know, we often look to our grandparents and our parents and we are eternally grateful for the sacrifices that they made so that 
we could be more free today. And how are we living our lives so that our grandchildren can look at us and thank us so that they could be more free than we are today? And as far as I'm concerned, making that publicly traded company a little bit more money for the next quarter earnings <laughs> report ain't it. And so it's a great, you know, it is a challenging time for our community, but it is also a very freeing and very uh, safe time for us to make the decisions that we want to uh, for our future. So, uh, Aiko, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy thank you your for time. having me. Oh, this is so fun. Um, I, I might require everybody to do recordings in person now. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for being loud. Uh, thank you for being vocal. And um, thank you for uplifting our community in, in ways that uh, only you can do it. And uh, I look forward to continuing our friendship and learning as we go along. Thanks so much. Thank you. So excited to have had this conversation, so honored and so blessed. Uh, she's such an amazing person and uh, just a thoughtful, thoughtful person. Um, I'll share with you that as soon as we were done with this interview, she was asking me how she could help and listing off the things that uh, she could do for me and followed up on all of it. And so I am so grateful to her and to the people in my world um, for continuing to bring people like Aiko into my circle. Rarecoaching.net is where you can find Iko, uh, rare underscore coach on Instagram. You can find me at jerrywan.com or on Instagram, either at the show account at the Asian Americans or personal at jerryj1. You can shoot me an email anytime you want to chat or talk to me about the show at jerry at jerrywan.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so excited. We're going to be uh, sharing with us or we're going to be sharing with you a number of episodes as we lead up to APAM, and we have some exciting things there planned as well. Uh, if you have made it to this episode or this far in this episode, um, shoot me a note. Let me know what you thought about the episode, and would love to hear from you. Uh, if you are listening on Apple or Spotify, would appreciate a review on the show as it helps other people get this show introduced to them. And uh, take a screen cap or email it out to your friends, text it to your friends, or uh, tell somebody in your life who needs to hear Iko's story. So again, biggest thanks to Iko for joining me on this episode and for all that she has done uh, to uplift our community. And thank you for tuning in. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I thank you for joining. And I thank you for tuning into Dearest Americans. Be safe, be well, be happy. See you next time.